left or right I'm just staying home tonight Getting lost in that hopeless little screen But I'm stubborn as those garbage bags of time cannot decay I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet Democracy is coming to the USA All right, we're going to talk about uh, elections and propositions and polls and the possibility of election theft for the next uh, segment and maybe going into our third segment. We may uh, start off with kind of a bit of a reset, a few quotes and quips and stats, in this case, all election-related. Let's start with The Economist's quote based on an Ann Romney quote. Apparently on the ABC program The View... On October 18th, Anne Romney said, referring to her husband's uh, two years spent in France trying to convert Catholics to Mormonism, he was serving his mission. My five sons have also served their mission. I sent them away as boys, and they came back men. I like the economist's reaction where they sniff. Anne Romney equates Mitt Romney's Mormon mission in France with a tour of duty in Vietnam. Yes, I love the fact that Mr. Romney, like so many uh, hawkish Republicans, said, you know, after thinking about it, that time he spent over in Stanford after he did his mission and came back from France, boy, you know, he kind of wished he'd been able to spend some time with the guys over in Nam. Which takes us to our George McGovern comment on last week's program about how he used to have to bite his tongue in the Senate listening to these hawks go on about Vietnam saying to himself, not to them, you know, if you think this is such a good idea, why aren't you over there? We did get an email, Romney-related email, from Lisa, who noted that a Mormon friend of hers had also gone over to France, and in fact, he was picked up at the airport by none other than Mitt Romney, whom he describes as the most arrogant person he's ever met. Mitt was apparently uh, on his way home, as this person was about to begin his mission. And well, I hate to quote from him without citing who the person is, but I don't have his permission, so I'll just do exactly that. Said Mormon missionary X, he was tall, very bright, and had an air of privilege about him that I was more than willing to grant. I knew he was there before I landed. So great was his father's reputation among the Mormons. Having had humility pounded into us for two months before we set foot on French soil, and having everyone we met be accommodating and friendly, it was very jarring to meet Louis the Sixteenth, um, I mean Elder Romney, who seemed to have not a shred of compassion for anyone but himself. I quickly found out that this is how everyone felt: missionaries, local members, and the mission president. When I asked the president how someone so far from ideal could have become assistant to the president, which is the highest office in the mission hierarchy, the president replied that Elder Romney had quote announced unquote that he would be AP assistant to the president, by the time he left his mission. Apparently the president added that it was his predecessor who had selected Elder Romney for that high office, quote, in spite of his lack of humility, unquote. Whether this person is going to vote for Romney or not, we don't know, but I I suspect not. Let's, Let's do some stats from the Harper's Index, such as percentage of Democrats who have a, quote, unfavorable, unquote, opinion of Muslims. 29%. Percentage of Republicans, 
57%. But here's a series that rank with my all-time favorites from the Harper's Index. Percentage of Ohio Republicans who say Obama is more responsible than Romney for the death of Osama bin Laden. 38%. Percentage who say Romney is more responsible than Obama, 15%. And percentage of Ohio Republicans who say they aren't sure which man is more responsible for the death of Osama bin Laden, 47%. Does it worry you, dear listener, that this election may come down again to Ohio, a state where the Republicans, based on the Harper's Index, appear to be smoking crack? I mean, You don't have to like Obama to know that, you know, as commander-in-chief who authorized the mission, he's going to be responsible, ultimately, for what happened to Osama bin Laden, whereas a former governor of Massachusetts, who was at the time battling Rick Santorum, Newt Gingrich, and Herman Cain, well, he just couldn't possibly have had a hand in this action now, could he? But uh, 47% aren't sure, and 15% give the nod to Mitt. I'd meant, dear listener, to spend this segment talking about the ballot props and who's running and who I think you should vote for, which I'm entitled to do because, after all, the opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. They are my opinions alone. In previous shows, we used to bring in a liberal and a conservative and have at it, but we're going to cut to the chase, and I'm just going to call them as I see them. Although Mr. Millen may disagree with me on one or two and pipe up. Although I got a feeling the only one we're going to disagree on is the death penalty, because he evidently has finally come around on the issue of the claw. But we, in fact, need to make a long digression in this segment into what is likely to happen on Election Day. And I'm sorry to say this, but what appears to be reasonably likely to happen on Election Day is another stolen election. This is the fourth presidential election held in the United States since the year 2000. In the year 2000, the election was stolen by Jeb Bush and Florida Republicans with some help from Roger Ailes and a Bush cousin working at Fox News and Katherine Harris and a slew of lawyers and a complicit U.S. mainstream media, sad to note. Oh, and I shouldn't forget mentioning the Supreme Court of the United States. Majority appointed by Republicans, dot, 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 to put George W. Bush in the White House. And before we talk about election 2004, let me note a quote from the current edition of Harper's Magazine. The piece in there I recommend to all of you, dear listener, by Victoria Collier, titled, How to Rig an Election. Subheadline, the GOP aims to paint the country red. We also would direct you to a piece in the UK Progressive, available on the web, titled NSA Analyst Proves GOP is Stealing Elections. But the quote from the Harper's piece comes from veteran pollster Lou Harris, he of the Harris Poll, who said in relation to what happened in 2004 in Ohio, quote, Ohio was as dirty an election as America has ever seen, unquote. Yes, just as the Secretary of State in Florida, Catherine Harris, was also simultaneously running the Bush for President campaign 
in 2000. In 2004, Kenneth Blackwell, Secretary of State in Ohio, was also simultaneously heading the Bush-Cheney campaign in his state. People have asked how it is we allow such conflicts of interests among our public officials, which does tend to make the American electoral process look like something out of a banana republic. And uh, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But before we're done in this segment, we're going to talk about, again, how the mainstream media just won't touch this issue and needs to. We've spent a lot of time on it in this program, but not of late. In the wake of... uh, what happened in election 04 and what was we thought maybe likely to happen in election 08, we spent a lot of time talking about what, uh, what good work Bev Harris of Black Box Voting has done. We talked about the work done by Mark Crispin Miller looking at elections, uh, which was featured prominently on Franz Casting's show, It's About You. We brought on Bob Fitrakers from the state of Ohio to talk about what happened there. We talked to Steve Freeman and statisticians about election 04, which, of course, we're watching very closely in the wake of election 2000. And I ask all of you mathematicians out there who probably stopped listening to this program a long time ago, thanks to my slam at the fact that uh, we allegedly educate people in this country as to regards things mathematical, but no one seems to have learned any of them. I ask all you mathematics-inspired people to step up here and note that in the 2004 election, a sampling size across this country of 68,000, 68,000 in the sample, showed John Kerry was going to win by 3%. When the final results were tallied, he lost by 2.5%. Such a thing can happen by chance, even with a large sampling size. But the larger the sampling size, the less the chance that could be just a random error of math or sampling. In the case of the 2004 election, the chances mathematically of a five and a half percentage point error based on a sampling size that large is 900,000 to one. This is all old ground for us on this show. We have not talked about it much lately, but I think we need to, again, spend some time on today's show because... Well, there's some indications that bad things are afoot. Let's start with the Harper's piece. Victoria Collier starts by going back to a a simpler age, back in 1932, when uh, Louisiana Senator Huey Kingfish Long was arranging to uh, rig his state's vote, something he had a long reputation of being pretty good at. But as regards several amendments to the uh, Louisiana Constitution he wanted to get through, he kind of overdid it in 1932. Uh, Apparently... (laughs) His favorite amendments won unanimously in no less than 16 New Orleans precincts and, oddly enough, garnered identical vote totals in 28 other precincts. When Eugene Stanley, the district attorney for Orleans Parish, decided to go after Long on this one, the Kingfish apparently put a call into the governor, O.K. Allen, who solved the problem by declaring martial law. So while a convened grand jury had its members sorting ballots to try and resolve this electoral snafu. They uh, found themselves being supervised by armed National Guardsmen who stood by to protect them with machine guns. Now these days with electronic voting machines, we don't need to have these sorts of crude tactics. Notes Victoria Collier, as the 20th century came to a close, a brave new world of election rigging emerged on a scale that might have prompted Huey Long's stunned admiration. 
Two major events have paved the way for a new lethal form of election manipulation, the mass adoption of computerized voting technology and the outsourcing of our elections to a handful of corporations that operate in the shadows with little oversight or accountability. This privatization of our elections has occurred without public knowledge or consent, leading to one of the most dangerous and least understood crises in the history of American democracy. We have actually lost the ability to verify election results. Describing Direct Recording Electronics, DRE Voting, which permits touchscreen machines and in most cases does not require a paper trail, well... This now allows insiders to rig elections on a statewide or even national scale. Adding, whereas once you could catch the guilty parties in the act and even dredge the ballot boxes out of the bayou, the virtual vote count can be manipulated in total secrecy by means of proprietary corporate-owned software. Just one programmer could steal hundreds, thousands, and potentially even millions of votes with the stroke of a key. Let's go back to election 2000, the one that uh, inspired the (laughs) George Bush-sponsored Help America Vote Act, which has investigated journalist Greg Pallas said on this program, when you got George W. Bush helping you how to vote, you're in trouble. Victoria Collier notes in the piece, few Americans knew, and many still do not know, that a faulty computer memory card triggered the 2000 fiasco. Late on election night, Al Gore's total in Volusia County, Florida, suddenly dropped when one precinct reported 16,000 negative votes. Fox News was immediately prompted by Florida Governor Jeb Bush to call the election for his brother. On his way to a 3 a.m. public concession, Al Gore changed course when a campaign staffer discovered that he was actually ahead in Volusia County by 13,000 votes. Here's something else you may not have known, dear listener. Way back in 1996, Chuck Hagel, a rather unknown millionaire, ran for Nebraska's U.S. Senate seat. Now, surprisingly, Chuck Hagel's race against uh, the former Democratic governor, Ben Nelson, who'd been elected on a landslide two years earlier, was uh, surprisingly tight. The Gallup poll said before the election, we can't predict the outcome of this one. So it does seem kind of odd that when the vote tally came in, Hagel actually trounced Nelson by 15 points. Noted Collier, even for those who had factored in the governor's deteriorating numbers in the last-minute barrage of negative ads, this divergence from pre-election polling was enough to raise eyebrows across the nation. Few Americans knew that until shortly before the election, Hagel had been chairman of the company whose computerized voting machines would soon count his own votes. That was Election Systems and Software, which was then called American Information Systems. Now, Hagel had stepped down from his post, two weeks before he announced his candidacy, but had retained millions of dollars in stock in the parent company. And Michael McCarthy, the parent company's founder, was Hagel's campaign treasurer. Six years later, Hagel was challenged in his Senate seat by uh, uh, a rather underfunded Charlie Matulka, described as a construction worker with limited funding and name recognition. Nevertheless, Hagel won an astonishing 83% of the vote. Despite 400,000 registered Democrats on the rolls, Matulka managed to scrape up only 70,000 votes. Of course, at this point, Hagel had never really actually disclosed that he had financial ties to ESNS, and when Matulka requested an investigation by the Senate Ethics Committee, that request was rejected. The year after that, Bev Harris a citizen sleuth and the author of Black Box Voting, Ballot Tampering in the 21st Century, 
was uh, nosing around on the web and discovered that one of the other electronic voting machine companies, Diebold, had apparently left 40,000 files that made up its global election management system on a publicly accessible website entirely unprotected. Harris downloaded those files and programmers worldwide started probing the code for weaknesses. Turned out the system was a vote rigger's dream. According to Harris's analysis, it could be hacked remotely or on-site using any off-the-shelf versions of Microsoft Access and password protection was missing for supervisor functions. Later in the piece, Ms. Collier notes that the statistically anomalous shifting of votes to conservative right-wingers has become so pervasive in the post-Help America Vote Act America that it now has a name. Experts call it the red shift. The Election Defense Alliance, the EDA, is a nonprofit organization that specializes in election forensics. Their findings show that when disparities occur, they benefit Republicans and right-wing issues far beyond the bounds of probability. David Moore, described as a former vice president and managing editor of Gallup, says that what the exit polls have consistently shown is stronger Democratic support than the election results. Collier poses the question in the piece, wouldn't American voters eventually note the constant disparity between poll numbers and election outcomes and cry foul? Well, they might, except the polling numbers, too, are being quietly shifted. Exit poll data is provided by the National Election Pool, a corporate medium consortium consisting of the three major television networks, plus CNN, Fox News, and the AP. And one thing Americans don't realize is that those final exit polls on Election Day get adjusted by the pollsters that supply the data to the national election pool based on the actual results. So yes, they fudge the numbers. I do recommend, dear listener, that you read this entire piece. We're only going to cite one example from it, at least one more example from it. That's because we were on top of this subject here in Radio Parallax when it happened two years ago. But it turns out in retrospect, it's even weirder than we reported. Noted the piece. In the 2010 race for U.S. Senate, which Republican Jim DeMint won by 78% of the vote, what is mysterious is not the ultimate outcome there, but the Democratic primary that preceded it, which tossed up a fairly fortuitous opponent for Jim DeMint. That would be Alvin Green, an unemployed 32-year-old accused sex offender living in his father's basement. Green, often described as incoherent, ran no campaign. He had no website. He made no appearances at Democratic events. He didn't even have a yard sign. Yet, miraculously, he beat his opponent in the Democratic primary, former judge and four-term state legislator Vic Rawl, and he won by an 18 percentage point margin. Voters and campaign workers reported that the ESNS touchscreen machines flipped votes to green all day long. And what's curious is that the absentee ballots, which of course are counted by hand, told a different story. In half of the state's 46 counties, there was a 10 percentage point disparity between absentee ballots and those counted by machines. In Lancaster County, Rawl won 84% of the absentee vote. Green, for his part, denied accusations, or some would say observations, that he was a GOP plant, while he declined to explain where exactly he got the $10,400 needed to file as a candidate. Vic Rall lodged a formal protest and requested a new primary. He was knocked down by the executive committee of the South Carolina Democratic Party. And of course, Jim DeMint then walked all over him in November. 
All right, we got to talk about the UK piece in brief also, but we need a break, so let's take one. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Stay tuned. We got we got lots more in our final segment. Thank you. 